I was extremely distrustful of the financial system, pretty disgusted about the way our political class were bending over to keep you know, the villains, as I saw them, uh, going. And I didn't like the idea that their mistakes were being mutualised and ordinary people were then being asked to, or not asked, told to foot the bill. And we can see now, as we look back, the impact that that has had. You know, the impact of austerity, the impact of the Great Recession in Europe has driven humans away from the centre out to the margins of politics. And it is that oxygen that has allowed nationalism and populism to rise in countries where you would never have imagined it to be possible. And big tech has, you know, unwittingly, to an extent, aided and abetted that process. That is Rob Wilson, the CEO and co-founder of Incent, a cryptocurrency startup here in Australia. And this is episode 293 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsburg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsburg. Welcome to the show. This podcast is a weekly conversation designed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That is all that I'm here to do. Something that you're going to hear in the next hour or so will make you just go, oh, I didn't oh, I didn't think about it like that. And then maybe just course correct a little bit. Maybe even just have yourself be a little better off for hearing the conversation that I have today. This is episode 293 of the show with uh, Rob Wilson. Fascinating cat. More about him in a moment. He's a cryptocurrency startup CEO based in Australia, but he's so many more things than that. Big thank you to everybody that rated and reviewed the show this week. Um, uh, The best thing you can do to help this show, if you like the show, if it brings you value, subscribe, rate, and review it in the podcast app that you can subscribe, rate, and review it in. Big thank you to um, Jack Juxnikini, I think is how you say it. There's not a lot of vowels. Long-time listener, thought I should know. show my appreciation. Love the podcast. There you go. Thanks for that. Nice one from Susie's Mobile, uh, new to Osh's podcast. How interesting and inspiring to listen to such honest conversations. Thank you for sharing your stories and the stories of your fascinating guests. Just love it. And one from Jess Bailey Boy, who wrote, Someone recommended Osh's podcast. I'm so glad they did. Osh speaks to the hearts and minds of people from all backgrounds. This podcast has completely challenged what I thought I knew about Osh, and I'm so grateful that I've had the opportunity to learn and grow as a person because of it. I'm writing down books, films, and songs as I listen and Googling galore. It reminded me how big this world is and that there is so much to learn to experience and to appreciate. Jess in Brisbane, thank you so much for writing those reviews. Really, really, really appreciate uh, that and the time you took to do it. Please do rate and review and subscribe to the show wherever you can do so. And if you do like the show, if it does bring you value, please just tell another person about the show. Maybe even show them how to download it, show them where it is, show them how to listen to a podcast app on their phone. That is incredibly helpful. If you do need me for anything, you can always email me, send Osher email at gmail.com. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So let me tell you quickly about my guest today, but before I do that, a bit of a backstory. Um, so Rob Wilson is the CEO and co-founder of Incent, which is a cryptocurrency startup based in Australia. You can find out more about Rob and the work that he's doing at incent.com, I-N-C-E-N-T.com. Now, if you've never heard of cryptocurrency before or you've heard of it and gone, oh, I don't know what that weird digital money is. Um, okay, let me quickly, because you're going to need to know this stuff before Rob and I talk, because it's important, because we're talking about what's going to happen or may happen if, when Facebook and the conglomeration of companies get their crypto up. Um, so, what's cryptocurrency? Let's um, quick, 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 quick uh, primer. So, money was a way that we found as a community to put value into a common language. And that common language served as a way to help us exchange that value. So what's value? If I spend a day digging up your garden, say for example, you couldn't do it, I'm providing value to you. If I did that, you wouldn't give me a trolley full of groceries, even though that's what I need. You give me a common language of agreed value, in this case, money, which you probably got doing something of value for somebody else. And I take an amount of that agreed language to the supermarket and I buy my fruit and vegetables with it. Fruit and vegetables that I did not have to plant or grow or dig up or transport to the market. And I give that money to the people that did, or the people that represent them, and so on and so on and so on and so on. Okay? So back in the day, money was of actual value. Well, made of metals that we had agreed upon were valuable. It's just lumps of rock that we dug up out of the ground, but we thought, oh, this is more important than that rock, so therefore it's got value, right? So there used to be actual value. There was gold, there was silver. Then a few hundred years back, the Chinese, uh, the Chinese, leaving the way to the future as always, they went paper, which confounded some people because it's just a piece of paper, but ultimately that's the system that won out. That solidified the idea that it's just an agreed value. In our community in Australia, money is plastic and metal. Physical money is plastic and metal, which is just, it's just really just useless objects until two people decide the green one 
or the yellow one is more valuable than the purple one. Therefore, it's got value. All right, it's just an agreement. But now, in this even more modern world that we live in, as we pay pass and tap our cards on terminals everywhere and put our credit card numbers in internet boxes, money doesn't even exist. It's data on a file in a hard drive somewhere that you and the people whose terminal you're pay passing onto, the person whose terminal you're tapping your card onto, it's just data that you've agreed is worth something. So now, because I was just talking about this to Audrey the other day, like, I don't carry cash. She don't carry cash. Now money, it's, it's essentially it's digital money. Okay? Are you with me? All right. So the next level of this, now we're moving on to cryptocurrency. Okay. So cryptocurrency essentially is another agreement of value. One that, however, by design makes all the transactions that occur around that secure. And importantly, and very interestingly, does away with intermediaries represented by banks, which have pesky fees and differing investment policies and things like that. And also, quite pescally, as, as far as some people are concerned, um, the need to identify by name, address, sometimes face, who owns what money. So putting a person to that dollar figure so they can find out who spent what on what. Now, the main feature of cryptocurrencies is security, and that's provided by blockchain technology, which essentially is a network of computers having an identical copy of the database of that money and changing that record by a common agreement based on pure mathematics. It's kind of like there is only one bank statement that everybody has. Everyone can see it. And those who deposited and withdrew it, we can see all the amounts, but they're completely anonymized. But the amounts are free for all to see. And every time a transaction happens, that statement verifies itself with another copy of that statement to be sure the transaction is legitimate. Now, where things get interesting is that within that baked-in security, legitimacy, and anonymity, there's a thing called smart contracts, which is where it becomes possible to create your own cryptocurrencies and issue your own, I guess, kind of sub-currencies, a thing called a token. And a token is a type of privately issued cryptocurrency. It's a, it's a, it's a value that an organization creates to run its business model, to regulate its business model, and in, you know, give its users the chance to interact with its products while facilitating the distribution and sharing of that own currency, of that own value to all the stakeholders within that ecosystem. And it's that kind of thing that Rob Wilson and the team at Incent are working on. It's very, very interesting stuff. Very, very interesting because um, Facebook and about a couple of hundred, maybe 200 other companies are all putting together and pulling in to create their own cryptocurrency, um, which will perhaps transcend borders and interestingly, perhaps tax systems. So interesting times ahead. So we're going to talk to Rob about that. But Rob's comes from a very interesting place. He's got a fascinating story. He's a former guy from the Royal Navy. Um, and the way his own life experience led him to explore other ways of how we can run things in this world is something I found really, really inspiring. Massive thanks to my buddy Jackson, who made this conversation happen, because I really enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoy it too. It's a conversation with Rob Wilson. Rob Wilson. 
Good morning, Rob. Hello. How are you, man? I'm good. Thanks for coming in today. Pleasure. I'm 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 grateful to have you in because there's um there's been a rumbling. People have probably heard about it. Certainly at the end of 2017, people were like, "Oh, what's this cryptocurrency thing?" You know, and it kind of came and went out of the public eye as um, the, the biggest cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, dipped well up into the you know tens of thousands of dollars and then kind of vanished again. And so people kind of have been going. I'd imagine it's it's out of their mindset right now. But we are uh, on the event horizon <laughs> something colossal happening yeah. uh, to our global economy possibly and I'm grateful you, you could come in to talk to me about it and kind of explain where you sit and where Australia sits and where the possibilities are and where some opportunities may be or where some things to look out for maybe but what I'm fascinated in is the mindset of which you look at all this because before you're into crypto <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were running warships around, weren't you? Yeah. Look, I'll give it a go. Um, <laughs> you were in the Royal yeah, Navy from when? So from 1988. How old were you? I was just 18. Wow. A naval family? No, not at all. No, my, my folks were um, retailers. So back in the day, it's hard to remember now, but the UK was at the front line of the Cold War. And it was very natural for a young British um, person to want to not so much be part of that necessarily, but to defend their family, to mm. to stand up for for their country. It so, was very real. It was very very real. Yeah, and it was. It turned out that we were at the crescendo of that. Right within two years of me joining, the game turned from national security. And over time, it morphed into something very, very different. You know, if you're talking about global security as opposed to national security, what you're actually talking about is sailing around the world, probably at the orders of not even your nation state, but an ally, putting out bushfires. So as time goes by and I grow up in the service, I start to become less and less easy about the things I am involved in and then subsequently leading my sailors into. And really matters came to a head in 2008. By this time, I was, by this stage, I was in command of a pretty big warship, 200 people, half a billion dollars worth of um, you know, national treasure. And we're in the uh, Mediterranean. I was standing on the bridge. Uh, it's a sunny morning and we were, we'd been doing um, gunnery training as a force. So it ought to have been you know, the apogee of everything that I had fought for and worked hard towards. I had a lovely family at home back in UK. I hadn't seen them by that stage for about uh, five months. And instead of being euphoric, I was feeling profoundly uneasy about the fact that it felt to me like I was winning the wrong race. You know, the GFC was um, in full swing uh, by that stage. And the, the reasons I had joined the Navy to sort of protect, if you like, my way of life, our, our society, had, had somehow become discordant. And I could see bigger threats to that way of life that I had nothing to do with, no way of influencing. And in the meantime, I appeared to be, you know, tinkering with the deck chairs on the Titanic. So I... It's not like I put all this together in a heartbeat, but I did make the decision that to change life direction and take myself off to school. 
which is what I did. And the result of that was to decide that I could no longer be where I was and arrived in Australia in 2012 with my, with my family having never, having never even visited before. Wow. So just to explain, gunnery training is, uh, it's not just, let's see how we can work this out, boys. Gunnery training is often used as a bit of a remote, oh, to a country that might be doing something that the world may not be happy with. Yeah, they're in international waters, but you can probably see them from your house. And yeah, they're over there firing these gigantic 24-inch cannons. Yeah. Uh, not in your direction, but it's a pretty easy thing to turn those cannons around. Yeah, uh, that's right. I mean, as a bit of a flex, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, and over the course of my uh, of that sort of 20-year career, I, I think the other thing that I think is germane is that I saw in off Yugoslavia, off Yemen, off, Afghas- off Afghanistan, what happens when that fabric of state fails? What life is, how quickly life deteriorates for the inhabitants of that area? And so if anything, that really, you know, that it, those experiences reaffirm my, my view that imperfect as it is, we don't have, a, a, as humanity, a better solution f- that would give ordinary people the means to live you know, peacefully and productively. And that puts me at odds with a lot of um, crypto exponents, right? I mean, that, that is a very different view, but it is born from experience. Mm. So after 20 years, I've, I'm guessing it's, it's a pretty stable job. This is pretty much always going to be a military unless the state fails, as you mentioned, but UK not in a hurry about to do that. Yeah. What was the conversation with your wife like? You know, hey, honey, I know we've got four kids at home, but uh, <laughs> I reckon that uh, we're going <laughs> gonna... to... Yeah. Remember that pension that you were, <laughs> we were counting on? <laughs> yeah. What's that chat like? From command, I'm, I was lucky enough to study for three years in the States. And it was an interesting time to be there because it was post-GFC. Uh, Obama was, you know, had been handed the, the soccer ball and he was, you know, doing his best. Uh, it was a pretty febrile time in the States. We were seeing the aftermath of the um, GFC on the ground. Which, which part of the States were you? I was in Rhode Island. All oh, right, on the So, you know, actually yeah. a, a pretty uh, wealthy, mm. stable and... Yeah, but yeah. I, I was I was in Los Angeles at the time, and I remember driving down. I'd come here to do some work, and then head back over there. And you drive down Sunset Boulevard, these like marquee shops, and like w- one in five was open. Yeah, the rest was, was taped up, closing down. People in Australia had no idea how bad it was. Yeah, it was brutal. And it's and that, that that you make a good point. I mean, the you had to have been in in Europe or the States post GFC to understand the impact it had and is still having. What were you studying there? It was military strategy, politics. Mm-hmm. It, that, that, it was, it's the sort of course that a, um, a military officer, if he's lucky, gets to complete mid-career. And the idea is that it prepares him for higher rank. And higher rank was, was something I didn't want and, and didn't think I could do, frankly. I mean, I, just looking around me at my cohort, I could, I, you could feel people putting their track spikes on to get into the political or the mm. you know, diplomatic arena. And I, I was a sailor. But by, to, I mean, to answer your question, I think 
my wife Tara knew by that stage that we kind of knew too much. I had gone to the States and gone to college to try and understand this conundrum that I uh, mentioned earlier. And what I learned, frankly, was that you know policies that the West adopted to win the Cold War were, the, were in they weren't just a part of the reason, they were the reason that we had finally, we'd lost control, um, not just of finance, and, but also the way we govern uh, corporations, you know, laissez-faire economics has been our undoing. And I think that's germane to where you might want to take this conversation because without those policy decisions, you know, uh, formulated uh, by the Reagan administration enacted in, across Britain and Europe, uh, there is no way that big tech in Silicon Valley would have managed to have um, secured and maintained and been allowed to maintain monopoly power, which has created this Medusa. Mm. Medusa is a good word for it. <laughs> a very right. good word for it. I, I found a note in one of my Evernote things when I was, I don't know, I was having a chat with a guy because I was, I was toying with starting... In the startup scene, about 2010, 2011, 2012, I was toying with that. And I was heading up and down to San Francisco, yeah. fundraising missions and things like that. And one of the notes that I made with one of the calls that was advising me, just in capital letters, I've, I've written out, buy Bitcoin. And I remember at the time... In 2011? Yeah, yeah. Well, you were ahead of me because it was 2012 <laughs> when it came onto my horizon. Right. And I remember at the time... Smart guy. Well, here's the thing. It's the, everyone's got this story. I remember at the time trying to buy some and yeah. the amount of personal information that they wanted from me to buy this thing that I didn't know about. I'm yeah. like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do that. Uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> so, the, so I remember my, I mean, this is a little bit of a side. You asked why, you know, how I managed to bring a family of four and a wife willingly to Australia. I would say to you that it's felt like divorce. You know, when you, you know, if you're unlucky enough to be in that situation, you know, people don't split up because there's something better. They split because they can't bear to be apart. And that's how, that's how we felt. So we get out to Australia in 2012, and you can imagine, we're pretty skint. But I had become aware of this uh, organism that is Bitcoin sort of in my periphery. And I made the decision to, um, to get engaged. We didn't have any cash. So without telling Tara, this is probably the only thing, the only you know, secret we haven't shared at, um, you know, from the outset. I took out a car loan and I withdrew the cash um, because one had to. And I remember I had to deposit it in $5,000 chunks into an account of a guy I didn't know in a place I wasn't in and, and then hope Bitcoin would arrive in the wallet that I had designated and this took place over a period of six days. And they were, it was a curious time. And I didn't say anything about this until Bitcoin had uh, appreciated considerably and was able to say, look, I did this thing. We're going to be all right. <laughs> mad, right? Just mad. But that was 2013. Holy moly. So, you, you, so if it was 2012, I'm guessing Bitcoin was was pretty what was the value at the time it's about a hundred bucks right right all right okay well so that really i mean so that gave me the opportunity to do something yeah about furthering bitcoin adoption yeah and that's what we did with the cash and so tell me i mean i'll, I'll explain in the intro i'll explain you know how cryptocurrency is and what cryptocurrency yeah works. sure but using the mindset that you have of the world and you know, using this 
the lens that you view the the way the mechanism of the world works um, and the economic mechanism of the world and how it's changing. Why cryptocurrency? Why is that the thing that you started to get drawn towards? Because you could have just gone and worked for Goldman and, you know, you could have just got, you know, they would have welcomed someone with your military background and gone, yeah, buddy, in you come and led a bunch of fine found managers and, and stuff like that into the breach as they, you know, yeah. looked after investment portfolios of pensioners. So I need to stack, start, to answer that question, I had to step back in time a bit. Yeah. Uh, when my father was still with us, he had got me interested in financial trading. And I'm going back to 2004. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated because I could see that when one looks at a financial chart, what one's really looking at is a reflection of uh, mass psychology. So that fascinated me at the outset. But I couldn't really do much about it in the Navy because, you, you know, Wi-Fi is not a thing, right? We didn't have connectivity, even, even in the early 2000s. But I did read uh, a lot about it and formulated a training a trading strategy which i rolled out on the back of my uh, studies in the states it was the first time i had been ashore and it sounds weird but when you're at sea particularly in command you're living a a very you know real visceral existence it's like uh, living a novel you know the decisions you make matter the pace of life is fast um, you're doing long days, you're probably drinking a bit, you're physically fit, you're dealing with a lot of different people, you're on a mission. It's quite an intoxicating environment, and I missed it. And so in the midst of my study, I determined that I would qualify myself to manage other people's money, roll out my trading system. I wrote a book about it to give it publicity. And then I used to get up at... Um, believe it or not, 2.30 in the morning to trade the London Open through to when I had to go to college. And so I did that for about my final year in the States and was actually you know, quite successful at it. And then something happened in, um, in New York which made me sit up and think. And that thing that happened was an outfit called MF Global, uh, which was headed up by a chap called John Corzine, who was the governor of New Jersey. He's an ex-Goldman man. They went under. And the reason they went under is that they had taken what is called the doomsday bet on Europe. If you cast your mind back to that time, European banks were under a lot of stress. And because of that, uh, sovereign nations were under a lot of stress and a lot of people were betting that whole countries would go down. Trying to do the, the equivalent of the big short of 27, 2007, That's exactly right. right. Corzine... You know, smartly said, you know what? This won't be allowed to happen. And if it does happen, there'll be nobody left to pay because the reverberations will be international and it will be the end. Hence the word, you know, the doomsday bet. Yeah. But his timing was off and his leverage was too much and he couldn't service the debt. Now, MF Global was, a, um, was an outfit where ordinary people would lodge you know, their savings. Farmers would lodge their, you know, their, their capital. And even though those funds were, individual funds were segregated, Corzine raided his customer funds to try and keep the bet alive. Well, all my customers' funds were in the same bank, Chase Manhattan. And it sounds, you know, obviously... 
life has moved on. But it was a febrile time. And I thought, you know what? If I lose my customers, their money, I can live with that. But if Chase Manhattan are under pressure and they just take my customers' money, then I can't be responsible for that eventuality. And so initially, why Bitcoin? I was extremely distrustful of the financial system by that stage. I was pretty disgusted about the way our political class were bending over to keep you know, the villains, as I saw them, uh, going. And I didn't like the idea that their mistakes were being mutualised and ordinary people were then being asked to, or not asked, told to foot the bill. And we can see now, as we look back, the impact that that has had. You know, the impact of austerity, the impact of the Great Recession in Europe has driven humans away from the centre out to the margins of politics. And it is that oxygen that has allowed nationalism and populism to rise in countries where you would never have imagined it to be possible. And big tech um, in Silicon Valley has, you know, unwittingly, uh, to an extent, aided and abetted that process. There's never any one thing, but we are at a pivotal point in our evolution and it's in my view critical that we that we make sane decisions now if you go back to the majority of the last century and every century before it you know the way we valued a human being was on what they could do and how they could think and how they could communicate and it was a pretty transactional world right so so a human uh, being would earn their way by delivering value to society, you know, in the, in the broadest sense, whether through an employer or, or, or directly. I'm the cobbler, I'm the butter maker, I look after the sheep, I will guard your sheep. That's right. That's, I will educate your kids, whatever. Yeah. Business would operate on the, on the, on the principle of diver, uh, delivering a benefit mm. that they could source cheaper than they could sell. And we can, you know, you can put together in your mind a very simple um, value transfer sort of model. And then you have states sitting above that, taxing both, and it is providing them, frankly, with the oxygen to do what they do. Roads, sewerage, electricity, etc. Yeah, and if you, but if you think about um, what state provides, you know, security, law and order, um, utilities, education, aged care, health what it should provide, what, what it provides in the first world, actually, it's a pretty sweet deal. And state has to have, particularly in democracy, a moral conscience. Right? And if it doesn't, you know, just ask Tony Blair what happens, right? You, people eventually find voice and they remove what they consider to be that particular cancer. If we cycle forward to um, where we are now and we consider what we value in a human being, it's fundamentally different. So what a human being can do physically is significantly less important than in times gone by. And what a, human, a human's cognitive ability is also relatively less important. What we really value, what we demonstrably really value in a human now is what their social clout is, what their capacity to carry debt is, what they like, 
we value their attention? Will they look at me? It's a whole different cadre of things that we value in a human being, and it's sending human beings do lally. You know, we are, we are saturated. There's too much. There's too much choice. There's too much going on. We know too much. You know, I could go on and on. But it's putting human beings in a state of, that actually has a you know, psychological name. It's called the grip. You know, we don't feel more connected. We feel less connected. Uh, we don't feel more satisfied. We feel less satisfied. We feel under pressure and we don't know how we're going to get through. When you put humans in that, in that psychological condition and then you demonstrate as a state that you're incapable of looking after their base needs, don't be surprised if they move out to, you know, from the centre to the extremes. That's a huge problem. So in my view, what we have to do is we have to find a way of rebuilding confidence in state, at least until we have a better idea and a better way of looking after the issues facing us. And so what role, I mean, you quite clearly demonstrated with one great example, but it was replicated hundreds, if not thousands of times on how the financial sector just played monopoly money with people's retirement funds and if anything they got a golden parachute and said see you in the Hamptons next summer and they never paid you know a price that someone who committed a petty street crime would pay you know for this horrendous moral thing you know that they did and that happened thousands of times so you've talked about that and that what that financial sector has and the 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 instability of that has done not only to the society, but also to the, the, the political people who, who <laughs> there's a revolting door between the two, let's be honest. Right. So what role does a decentralised public ledger cryptocurrency play in helping that centre get rebuilt? Well, I think, you know, again, back in the day, it's the perfect hedge. Right? If you think the, the financial system is going to collapse... The perfect hedge is an organism which cannot be shut down, which is open source by nature, impregnable by code, that has lived in the wild and can live in the wild uh, and not be corrupted and allows people to transfer value instantly or near instantly, whether they be sitting across the table from each other or on the other, on the other side of the world. I mean, that has enormous appeal, um, something that cannot be shut down something that cannot be manipulated. So, I mean, these are all, you know, attractive qualities in a world that, you know, in a, in a febrile world. I don't think I ever saw any danger that Bitcoin would subsume or threaten the fabric of Westphalia, the fabric of state, uh, unless state collapsed, in which case we would need you know, another means of actually, you know, conducting trade and, you know, moving value around. So it has, I think it has a great, it sort of stands apart from the machinery of, uh, of state and, and of, you know, global geopolitics. And it sort of watches over its shoulder saying, look, I'm here. Don't fuck up. Mm. So that's, you know, uh, that was, that was and is, Bitcoin's appeal is it's just this organism which keeps, I believe, it keeps us honest. Mm -hmm. So you, I mean, 
for for folks who don't know, there's there's more than Bitcoin. There's thousands, probably tens of thousands by now, uh, crypto coins out there. Yeah. Why did you want to develop your own? So it it didn't it didn't really start like that. My first crypto project was a very simple directory which allowed people to understand where they could spend their Bitcoin, and it was an effort by me to further adoption. But hideously naive, really. When you look back, I mean, as I, as we were building out this uh, this technology which we delivered in a uh, mobile applications. Far smarter people were delivering, were, were working out how you could convert, quickly convert Bitcoin back to a fiat currency and, and you, you know, in the form of a credit card and were, were removing the reason for our project as we were building it. But just being in that environment enabled one to think about how you could deliver a cryptographic solution that actually solved a real world problem. We've already touched on that. You know, from my perspective, if you're coming from this from from the perspective of we have to find a way of revaluing a human of delivering value to a human for the things that we really care about then crypto is quite a neat way potentially of of doing that and i particularly honed in on the then traditional loyalty sector because it seemed to me like such a rort you know it's merchant centric in its nature and what it says to a consumer is I'll give you these beans, which will have very little value, but some value for a period of time. I will revalue them if I so choose. And they're only worth anything if, if they are re-spent with me. I mean, it's a consumption loop at best. So we're talking like a frequent flyer point. Even, for and example. And that is the, I mean, that, that you've, you've happened to pick on the best, really the best that traditional loyalty can be. Yeah. You're delivering an aspirational good yeah. Uh, everyone likes to get on a plane and go on holiday. Yeah. And um, I mean, you're actually talking about a, a digital currency, quite frankly. Well, someone, it's, it's, it's not worth very much. Someone figured it out. I was walking, I, was, I flew back in from Melbourne last night and I was walking past, there's a, there's a store in Melbourne, like a frequent flyer redemption store. Yeah. And someone figured it out, something like to get, I don't know, like a $400 phone case that you can get for your iPhone, you got to spend something like <laughs> 10 grand on yeah, yeah. plane flights. It's like, nuts. This is not a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, what's happening in the background is your data is being harvested yeah. and onsold at tremendous profit. Yeah. I thought, man, there's got to be a better way of doing that. And then when, you, of course, when you start thinking about it, you think, hang on a minute, how about if we could reward humans in this manner for all of the things that are, that commerce clearly values from them. So things like their attention, where they like to go regularly, what they tell their friends about. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you start thinking about uh, rewards in a consumer-centric way, they start to make sense. They start to make sense. And so that was really what drew me to the decision of creating a cryptocurrency and building technologies that could do that thing. How do you even start? I mean, do you just buy a rack of servers and, and you, you're obviously not writing the code from scratch. There's got to be some sort of open source crypto code. This is how it works. Yeah. I mean, but look, by this stage, I mean, it was fairly gritty back in the day. I'm going back to 2016 now. 
back but, in the day. It's three fucking years. Good Lord. How fast is our planet moving? It's, it's nuts, right? But literally. <laughs> Fuck me. Osher, you and I could go online now and we could create um, OsherCoin. It would take us less than three minutes. And we could create as many uni- units of it we wanted it, and it would live on a blockchain infrastructure. Uh, we could give it a name. We could uh, decide what circulation was going to be. We could decide whether that currency was going to be cryptographic or programmatically finite, or whether we whether it was we were going to be able to reissue it. And that I know, you know we haven't sort of touched on on Facebook and Libra yet, but that's what's so scary in this context is that. You can move extremely quickly. I mean, the, infra- the blockchain infrastructure is not something you, you need to build. Creating a digital token is extremely quick. And, and indeed, distributing that, uh, that token is extremely quick. The challenge is to create value, mm. is to create value in that token so that it means something to the recipient. Right. So when you started building your coin, what were the things that you, I mean, you already spoke about what, humans value what what is it what is a human being's value right now and Yuval Noah Harari talks a lot about this in his book 21 lessons for the 21st century uh, Roger McNamee speaks about it in the book Zucked and that more and more humans are we're the fuel that runs the massive tech companies just by what we look at what we click on what we spend time looking at in our goddamn phones hmm. like that's that that is where the fuel that runs that engine and from what i can gather what you were trying to do or what you are trying to do is give the people who are spending their time looking at that thing paying attention to that thing some amount of compensation for that rather than just here's a shiny thing to look at for a minute on your phone yeah, I think that, um, I mean, you absolutely that, but not just that. Um, crazily, in the internet age, human beings have become the finite resource, right? We only have each of us, you know, two eyes, two ears, and one motor. And that motor and those, that interface is, is actually pretty slow. We can only absorb so much. And yet at this point, there is that much content out there. There are so many people screaming for our attention that I think that if we haven't yet, we are moving first slowly and then I believe very quickly from a pay-to-view culture to a paid-to-view culture. So rather than I pay a monthly subscription to Netflix... There's a, you're saying we're moving towards a place where I don't know Netflix is going to pay me. Well, I think that, I mean, I don't think Netflix will be the first, but I, I think it's inevitable that we will get to a point where the volume of content is so great that if someone wants to differentiate their offering from their competitors, the economics will dictate that making a micropayment to get that view, to get that engagement is a smart move. Now, it's not going, you know, you you cite the example of Netflix uh, as an example. I think they're doing pretty well, thank you very much. But behind Netflix, there are a thousand uh, content producers that would pay people to come and give them a go. And in fact, our own pilots with um, an esports publisher in, in, in Australia last year would prove that we can demonstrably move the needle by making it possible 
for Gfinity's um, presenters mm. to deliver a little micropayment of cryptocurrency for someone to view live. Just, just so for folks who maybe don't have young people in their life, in the same way that I watched State of Origin last night, I'm not a rugby league player, but I watch it because it's interesting. All right, and you know I like to think that Queensland will win eight in a row again. They didn't, but that's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> No Jack. comment. No, that's all right. My buddy Jackson's uh, cheering <laughs> behind you. Uh, <laughs> uh, basically, esports is. Uh, I'm telling you now, it is the next greatest, humongous televised sporting event. Um, because if your kid plays Fortnite, um, you want to figure out how to get past this one bit that you can't figure out. So when you watch someone else do it, you're like, ah, oh, there it is. That's how you do it. And then when they play the next time, they get the move. Esports in parts of the world particularly South Korea, Seth in the States, will fill out 20,000, 25,000 seater stadiums and then millions of people will watch this stuff online. All right? It is it is absolutely the future of televised um, sporting entertainment. And, you know, there is it is pretty funny watching the, the players do their kind of posing before they... <laughs> before they throw down at League of Legends or whatever it is they're playing. But what you did in a, in a pilot program, could you explain to folks, for, so for people watching the live stream, how did your coin play a role in, in incentivizing people to watch it longer? Yeah, sure. We, I mean, we simply built a, a technology that allowed a um, the presenters at Gfinity to say, hey, look, we're going to reward you with, with a little bit of um, cryptocurrency for being with us today. Go to gfinity.insane.com, enter this code, bang. And um, and it's very simple to do. You didn't have to stop watching. And, and people did. And people did. And what we, what we could tell was that um, the people that did would, would stay on for the next one. All right. So they were. So the, the outbrief was to increase their average view time. And over their series, we increased it by 30%. But actually, for their best content, it more than doubled. So they had three particular games that they used to, that the competition was set over. Some of them were real crowd favourites and others weren't. But what really fascinated me personally was that because I could see how many people were signing up to get their instant reward and the impact we'd had on their average view time, we could see that the figures being reported by their infrastructure partners like YouTube, like Twitch, were an order of magnitude beyond reality. And that's significant when you think about it. Why so? Let's imagine for a moment that we are the board of a, a corporate, right? And we're living in a world now which is beyond multi-channel. You know, we're not talking about putting ads in the local paper or maybe something on the television. Our marketeers are pushing out our message over you know, channels that go into the tens. It's a hugely sophisticated business. And our marketeers are the most, probably the most stressed of all our employees. They're trying to check the stats on everything. Marketing budget in the Osher and Rob Corporation is pretty significant. And as the board, we feel like we're, moved, we're dropping it into a pit. You know, what is actually happening? How much business are we actually, is it, you know, what is its impact? Very, very difficult to know. You know, attribution is deliberately opaque. 
And indeed, we know, though we can't prove it, that our marketeers are kind of in league with the platforms that they're choosing to advertise through. So when the platform, if the platform over-reports, then it, there's no honest broker between that platform and ourselves saying, yeah, you know, I, I'm not, not really sure about this, right? It becomes a self-licking lollipop. And this is what we could see was happening to, you know, this startup. You know, the platforms are saying, yeah, we're giving you hundreds of thousands of views, you're nailing it. And we could see that if we were having the impact we were having and we were getting signups in the thousands, that that couldn't, what they were saying, either what they were saying wasn't true or, or, or what I was seeing was, was, was not true. You know, so it's not just consumers here that deserve a better deal. It's actually business as well. And the, the, the problem we have is that these huge platforms enjoy monopoly power. And so it's their way or the highway. You know, as again, as the um, board of Osher and Rob Corp, we may not want to um, push money into the pockets of these huge entities but we honestly going to sit here and say, well, look, we're not going to use YouTube. We're not going to use Google. We're not going to use Facebook. We'd be voted off the board. So, you know, this is what happens when you allow entities to reach a point of monopoly power. I mean, we're way beyond the old-fashioned de definition of monopoly. When you, when you allow entities to become that powerful, then they start to look at state and indeed states. And they can afford to, frankly, to be dismissive. You know, the Facebook group, you know, which incorporates Insta, which incorporates WhatsApp, Messenger, they reach out and touch 4 billion people. You know, if you're trying to hold together a state, just a little one like the US, with 350 million people, and you can only maintain and service your balance of payments, your fiscal drama, if you can enjoy exorbitant privilege, if 85% of the world's trade is settled in your currency, even if you're only you know, conducting 20% of it yourself, if you need that status quo to exist and an entity which you've demonstrably failed to control says, well, do you know what? We're going to develop our own, our own currency. We think we can do it better. Their constituency is orders of magnitude bigger than your own. And they don't have a moral conscience. They're not required to. That is not the idea of a corporation. The idea of a corporation is to, to deliver shareholder value. They're just doing their thing. And this is what uh, LibraCoin is, isn't it? Well, look, yeah. I mean, it's not... Um, you know, Facebook's or Libra's entry into this fray is not in and of itself an evil thing, right? It is a very logical uh, response to what we all see as the weakness of the global financial architecture. There's nothing that you could point at and say, you know, that's fundamentally, you know, corrupt. It's not. It's a perfectly logical realize quickly realizable alternative to create a stable unit of currency that can bring in the unbanked and bring us all together that isn't the issue 
the issue is that we do not know how the existing status quo will react to that. Because it's not just, it's, it's been led by Facebook, but from what I know about it, it's, it's big players involved as well. There's like Visa, there's Uber, there's these gigantic, well, particularly Visa, like these humongous credit companies. The telcos. The telcos. Everyone's kind of getting involved. And I've read that, don't worry, it won't be Zuckerberg and Sandberg that are, that are running it. There's a board of governance and there's a way of, of, of it not coming, going down an evil route. But I, just, I don't know. Am I, am I right to be suspicious there? I think you're right to be concerned. I don't, I mean, whether suspicion's the right word. Again, it comes down to the fact that, like it or not, states are, a state has to have a moral con- a conscience. It has to look after to the extent that it is able, its citizens. That is what it's supposed to do. And we have the ability as the floppy bits that live in a state to hold it to account every so often. What we can be sure of is that uh, Libra will be uh, run by a corporate entity. What we can also uh, understand is that that entity will be inferred powers way beyond state so what you're really you know if in the in the post you know communist world we ha- we have been living under this uh competitive geopolitical tension between uh the china you know the chinese way you know a managed you know managed capitalism and what we might call the washington system of a liberal democracy this is a whole other thing you know this is tech libertarianism which cares not, which has demonstrated that it cares not about state. And so until someone can forecast that that's going to end well, I'm going to be suspicious, <laughs> suspicious yeah. of it. We've seen there have been news reports and it's quite clear that these companies, you know, I've got two Apple products sitting on the table, uh, Facebook, etc., go to great lengths to have all kinds of, taxation circus tricks so they can get out of paying tax the what's it called the dutch sandwich is one of them which is one of my favorite names um (laughs) yeah it's like you start a company here you reincorporate it in holland and then that pays a company back to that so it's like a yeah holland's in the middle because holland's got particularly strong privacy rules so there's all kinds of fabulous names for it like that but essentially it's like you and i pay uh heaps of tax compared to you know, these people, uh, and the, the brilliant line of Warren Buffett, why does my secretary pay more tax than me? And I'm a billionaire. You know, this is not okay. So if this is a state, if there's a 4.1 billion person state using this one particular kind of currency around these, say, let's say top 300 merchants that they use every day, who pays for the hospital? Who pays for the roads? You've alighted on, on what is, you know, very quickly and you, you on what has taken me five minutes to sort of, you know, uh, dawdle around. When I say that a state has a moral conscience, that's exactly what I'm getting at. That's exactly what I'm getting at. You know, state has to, you know, fix that road. It has to build that hospital. It has to send your children to school uh, or pay for them to go to school. It needs to look after the aged because if it doesn't, you'll keep voting out that entity until you can find one, that political entity that will. But if 
individually or collectively we decide to starve that entity on you know the governance of money we cannot be surprised if the services and infrastructure that we took for granted last year is not there this right it's not a zero-sum game and so you know can we expect that the ceding of power to a supranational corporation you know that isn't accountable to any electorate let alone the local electorate is going to look after our local needs as well as is currently the case you'd have to conclude that that is probably not going to happen you know already in britain the emotion or the in the conviction of Britons who wished to depart from the European Union was based almost precisely on that very point is that how can we expect a supranational organization to attend to our local needs here in UK when demonstrably we are the victims of policy rather than the beneficiaries of it now that is actually at the end of the day another you know supranational political entity that is accountable you know to an extent so, yeah, you'd have to. I mean, I think it is sensible to be slightly concerned um, when a, you know, a supranational corporate driven entity is tilting at something that could quickly result in even less money to elected governments. I mean, that's a big deal. That is a huge deal. And, you know, having been in um, a, a uniform service, which was increasingly routinely sent into uh, conflicts to protect the dollar right i've seen with my own eyes what the um what the us will do to to protect the standard of living of its people with my own eyes and i can't forecast what you know the trump administration particularly and the american polity generally uh, will do about it. But what we can see, what we know of um, of governance generally is that the American executive is far more powerful internationally than it is internally. You know, we see throughout history, American presidents have exerted themselves on the international stage because it's so much easier for the executive to do that than it is to marshal resource internally. And the, the forefathers planned it that way and that's the way it goes. You know, the reaction even internally in, in the States has been pretty visceral, but it's feeling, I don't know how much, you know, to what extent you've sort of uh, read into the commentary, but it almost feels like the petulant child sticking its hand up and saying, you must stop, you can't do this. You know, there were two congressional hearings last week and Facebook didn't even bother to turn up. You know, the leader of the Libra Project literally wrote a letter and said, well, this is how I think we're no concern to you. Do what you want with it. That is absolutely right. extraordinary. If that doesn't tell you, I mean, I, I remember watching Zuckerberg at the congressional hearing into the Russian uh, election fixing. Election fixing. Yeah. And seeing his tone and seeing the way he just sat there like, that they didn't even show up. Well, so, I mean, the, the, you see, yeah, you get me on a bit of a theme here, but the, um, the forerunner to the 2016 debacle, right, um, in, in the States was Britain. That's where the tech was rolled out. That's where the strategy was rolled out for the first time. There is no doubt 
that the reason that the pollsters were so far out on the way that vote eventually the swung, Brexit vote, yeah, was because uh, these platforms or their, and their architecture and algorithms were being used by entities within and out with the UK to sway that election in a certain way. I mean, that is beyond doubt. But it's incredibly difficult to prove because there's no permanence to the ads and messaging that live on Facebook, right? So the the trail goes cold. Mm. So unsurprisingly, the British Parliament summoned Zuckerberg to explain how on earth, um, you know, his gear had been, you know, in part responsible by its existence for this, you know, event occurring. It's pretty cataclysmic for the Brits, depending on what side of the fence you are. He just said he wasn't coming. So he didn't. <laughs> that was that. So a nation state, you know, respectfully requests the attendance of, you know, the CEO of a company that didn't exist 15 years ago. And he just says, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when, you, when people say Libra, awesome. I'm like, okay, okay. But let's be careful here. Because if we like this environment that we all live in and we, and we all of us take it for granted, then, so here's a guy who will take it or leave it. We've seen it through history um, what has had to happen before monopolies get broken up and we've seen you know, what it takes to get a monopoly broken up. Um, happened in the States with the railways, happened in the States with... Um, the telcos. Standard oil. Standard oil got broken up. Yeah. Do you think we could, could it possibly happen? Could you break up Facebook and Google? Could you break those things apart? Does it need to happen? Uh, so to answer that question the wrong way around, I think that we are way beyond at this point a healthy situation. We are way beyond, way beyond the healthy situation. Um, and in any other time, they would, not just Facebook, but, um, but Amazon and Google would have, been, would have been broken up. But they've managed to, all three of them have managed successfully to argue that um, Antitrust laws don't apply. You know, in the case of Facebook and Google, it's because they don't charge they don't charge the consumer. So one of the main arguments of um, for antitrust laws are that the consumer ends up paying more. And so Facebook and Google have successfully argued to this point that because the consumer doesn't pay anything, then that doesn't apply. And the second is that innovation is stymied, and since both entities innovate. In the case of Amazon, you might argue that their, their, their position is more precarious because there's no, there's no doubt that they're putting business and have, have for a long time put local business out. Since they have always made the, lowest, or the best possible service and the lowest possible prices to the end consumer their priority, they too have managed to um, successfully argue that antitrust laws shouldn't apply. I think at this point, the the wealth that they have at their disposal and the lobbying power and the legal horsepower that they have at their disposal is just too great. So it's a tricky one, you know, I, because I uh, already I see that 
we're not in a healthy situation, but I don't rightly see how we get out of it. I mean, I think the evidence is before us, right? I think the only political entity that has managed to hold either Facebook or Google to, to account is the EU, and that's 28 nations. So already we're at a point where uh, the US has demonstrably failed to hold to account an entity that is within its, you know, resides within its jurisdiction. Whether the threat, the direct threat that Libra poses to this exorbitant privilege that the uh, the US enjoys as the world's trading currency, whether that ups the ante to the point that bipartisan cohesion can be secured is, you know, at this point unknown. It, it ought to. <laughs> it ought to. Yeah. Um, but I think, more, you know, far more likely is that um, the executive will endeavour to act decisively in the, you know, the global geopolitical arena because it can. So it would be, int- be very interesting to be a fly on the wall when the politicians of, of Switzerland you know, come together with the, with the, with the US. So I think the diplomacy there is going to be very interesting, right? On the one hand, you know, the Swiss where Libra is going to function from have a, some tr- pretty meaningful leverage right there. How they choose to play those cards will be interesting. It'd be interesting to see how much leverage is put on the lesser members of the Libra Foundation, you know, who, who may well be more susceptible to uh, legal intervention than maybe Facebook is. I think that the, um, the American-led war on drugs has something to teach us about America's ability to affect the actions of states beyond its shores easier than it can the actions of um, players within its borders. And I'd go as far as to say that uh, the biggest threat to our project is probably Libra, not because of what it is, but because of the way that it might induce uh, sovereign states to behave with respect to cryptocurrency. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about crypto, but just when it comes to the, the Facebook and Google problem, the thing that, and I do speak about this with my friend James Matheson quite a bit, 
um, when you're that big, when you don't have to show up to Congress. And I've had the privilege of seeing a little bit of how the back end works and have an idea of what, you know, you move a slider, you change reality. That's just the fact. And when you are no longer having to pay a lobbyist to go and track down someone to go and have dinner with them and convince them of the case when you just, you know, over the course of a month or two, you just throw a few things in this particular person's newsfeed, you prime them a bit, you prime them with a second article, third article, fourth article, boom, there's the one, you've changed their mind. All right, and you don't even have to take get on a plane. You, you know, that, I'm not, I'm not some sort of dystopian, you know, like this is that easy. Yeah. It's that easy to do. You know, I wonder if he doesn't show up because he's like, well, fuck it, if you vote against me, I'll just, you know, I know how to make sure the next vote goes my way. I've done it before. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Look, it's, um, you know, we are, you know, in one sense, we are, we are witnessing the best ex- executors that I've ever, that I've, in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, you know executors of, of an idea. Yeah, is what you're saying. Yes, but but right through to you know commercialization, to understanding the um, ahead of time the full scope, the full potential, but then driving execution through to to realization. I've, in my lifetime, I've never witnessed anything done better. You know, back in the day, wearing a uniform, the the military is able to execute a simple idea well. And, and it does that. It uses every mechanism it can think of to do that. It puts people in uniform. It gives them rank. It has voluminous you know, orders. There's a rigid, rigid disciplinary system. And what that achieves is that, that gives you the ability to mobilise to a pretty simple objective in most cases at the tactical level. You might op- the, the environment may be hostile, but the, the idea is pretty simple. When I view entities like Facebook and Google in that context who do not and choose not to employ any of those levers, but yet manage to uh, brigade technical complexity and roll it out without, it's just mind-blowing. So, you know, one of the reasons that a state need not have feared Bitcoin is because no one was in charge, right? It's an organism, right? So it's, it doesn't have the ability to execute. That's why they should worry about Libra. Because these guys have track record. They have an extremely efficient command and control. You know, they have proven that they can brigade internationally around complex ideas and execute mm. superbly. Yeah, the, the, the structure is, it's been described as the command and control structure of Facebook does not look like a pyramid. It looks like a, a loaf of bread with a TV <laughs> antenna sticking out of it. <laughs> yeah, I've read that. Which, it's spot on. Yeah, which is Sandberg and Zuckerberg That's right, yeah. coming out of that loaf of bread and then they say a word and then the loaf of bread makes shit happen. We've spoken about the, you know, and it's right to, you know, let's be sceptical, you know. What's the great promise of cryptocurrency? What's the great promise of blockchain? What's the great, you know, promise that it could deliver us um, in the next coming years beyond something like Libra, let's say, you know. Well, I think... Osha, the, the irony here is that, um, you know, humanity is faced with problems which states either singularly or collectively have demonstrably failed to get across. 
you know, I'd cite three. You know, one, the, the biggest is, without a doubt, you know, climate change. But unregulated movement of people, of peoples, is another, which will only be made worse by climate change. And I think the third one that I would cite is, is the proliferation of um, weapons of mass destruction. You know, we have, as humanity, ordered in its current, the way it is ordered in interstates, we've just failed to get across these things. So it's clear that we need, we will not get across them if we remain configured as we are. What Libra offers as a universal global currency is it's shining a potential torch on the way ahead because you know he who owns the if you like the, um, the the financial fuel has at least the ability to create the mechanism around that that would allow us to get at these issues so you know when it's a monday and i'm feeling uh, optimistic then you can look at it's not difficult to look through something like uh, Libra as as having tremendous potential to be the beginning of something that that works supranationally internationally and helps us you know to a more peaceful planet that can get across its issues so it you know look these things aren't um one-sided right I guess what concerns me, what always concerns me as a, um, a former military officer really is, is not that it's not about the idea. Many of us understand where we need to get to. It's how you get there. It is how do you negotiate from where you, you know, the current state to the future state that you, that you desire without being derailed by all sorts of second and third order consequences that are, in, are incredibly you know, damaging to ordinary people. Speaking of ordinary people who are listening to this and, you know, bear in mind it might be the first time they've considered any of the things we've spoken about, what <laughs> what do you do? What's some ways you can, you know, just at least keep your head above the water? What's some ways that you can, things that you can look out for um, to, you know, I guess prep for the, for the next five, ten years in this space? I think the most important thing is to keep your head right. I mean, we're all exposed to volumes of content and inevitably the most scandalous, the most outrageous, the most, the most attention grabbing have over the time the potential to polarise, you know, our views. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to be informed and to be measured and always to seek different perspectives. I think that's the thing that we can as citizens is our responsibility to do you know if we want state to function then it's on us to provide our um our politicians with the mandate to do what we want so we need to stay engaged with that process i think if we give up on that um if we give up on um on politicians and politics a far worse future awaits us speaking of politics is there a future for blockchain in the electoral in the electoral electoral process do you think Inevitably. I mean, it could just be done so much better. Um, and there are already... It's inevitable for me that that will form part of a, of a project, an infrastructure project, which is ultimately succeeds. Um, but whether, you know, we find ourselves in a sort of Mount of Athena-type situation where politicians are informed in real time by the views of the electorate 
and therefore lobby for whatever the electorate in their jurisdiction happened to be asking for right now is something I'm more, far more sceptical of the value of because, as we've seen, the electorate can be a pretty febrile and um, fickle. Mm. So, yeah, I think uh, blockchain voting is coming. But, it, again, it, like it, as we've said before, it's the way all these changes are delivered. It's how we get from one to the other that's mm. important. Man, I could I could nerd out with you about this stuff for days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I know you're 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 a very busy man. So look, I'm just I'm just real grateful you came around and uh, we got to have this conversation. It's a, yeah, it's like fun. I said, it's probably the first time a lot of people would have you know considered some of the things we're speaking about, but they are happening and they're happening with extraordinary velocity. And um, you know, I guess the number that really kind of speaks to me that to, to take out of this is like, yeah. The Facebook group, 4.1 billion people. That's bigger than anything, anything. And the ability to manipulate that, that yeah. we're just trusting that these guys will do the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, look, I, in response, um, I don't get an often get a chance to nerd out like this either, so, so thanks. <laughs> and I share your view, you know, we've diving too much into the detail you know the Sri Lankan government have something to say about the way this particular infrastructure is being used to polarise opinion within their own you know war-torn island and we Myanmar as you know have already um, used you know Facebook for nefarious reasons with respect to ethnic cleansing 9,000 people yeah and there's no but there's no right of reply you know the UN for goodness sake uh, of vocal critics of these um, huge technical infrastructures. They're not even um, respected with the response. Holy <laughs> yeah. Moses. So, yeah. Wait, I don't know. Well, look, I mean, you mentioned uh, Facebook's command and control uh, structure. I was reading a, uh, a great little article just yesterday. So imagine the situation, uh, it's a CEO's conference, right? And one remarks to the other, he says, do you think that um, Cheryl still has the aspirations to run for US president one day? And the guy he's talking to says, why would she? She's already running Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> Well, look, let's remember the words of Hans Rosling. He wrote a fantastic book called Factfulness. Yeah, things are bad, but they're also getting better, faster than they've ever gotten better. So, yeah, there's bad things happening, but things are getting better than faster than we've ever seen before in history. So let's remember that all the stuff we've been talking about, there's corollary goodness happening, and that's the thing that we need to hold in our hearts, I think. Um, yeah, listen, we, I mean, we, you know, here we are um, in Australia. We, sh we need to cherish what we have. You know, we are a sovereign nation that looks after uh, its people. We do a good job um, at democracy here. We look after each other. I think that society is strong. And these are things that we shouldn't take for granted. And we should, um, it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean we don't hold our elected officials to account, but Man, I'm pleased that, that I came to Australia and, right. you know, it's been best decision I ever made. I'm glad you were here. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks, Hayes, for coming around. 
That, my friends, was Rob Wilson. To find out more about what Rob's doing, uh, slide on over to incent.com, I-N-C-E-N-T.com. Massive thanks to my audio producer, Andy Ma, who put this show together today. Couldn't do anything without the producer of this show, the producer of my life, and the one who was making saying no to things a true art form, the one and only Rachel Barrett, and of course the magnificent Toe Hider who made all the music that you heard today. Thank you so much for listening. If you need anything through the week, get in touch, send us your email at gmail.com. Until next time, I'll talk to you on Friday. Until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 